Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Many of us remember what it was like when we were young. The thing with getting older is only a few benefits, and almost all of those are spiritual. Heard about an elderly lady who had stopped to pull into a parking space when a young man in his new red Mercedes went quickly around her and parked in the space that she had been waiting for. The little lady was so upset that she went up to the man and said, Hey, I was going to park there. The kid threw his keys up in the air and caught them and then said, Well, Grandma, that's what it's like when you're young and quick. Well, this really upset the lady. So she got in her car, backed it up, and then stomped on the gas and plowed right into the back of his Mercedes. The horrified young man ran to his car and screamed, You crazy old bat, what did you do that for? The lady smiled and told him, Well, honey, that's what it's like when you're old and rich. This morning, Peter, like that young man, is going to learn what he did when he was a young man. But when he gets old, things are going to change. Only Peter's not going to be old and rich. Welcome back to our final study in the Gospel of John. Hope you've gotten something out of it, as I know it has changed me just in the teaching of it. If I gave titles to my sermons, I would call this final sermon a Dear John Letter. Because like those Dear John letters a girl would write, we are saying goodbye to John this morning. Look at verse 15 with me. Now when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, I think I'm echoing, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. To what does the word these refer to when Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me more than these? 
Perhaps Jesus was pointing to the other disciples. Peter had said earlier, Lord, if all these guys fail you, I never will. Or perhaps Jesus was pointing to the 153 fish there by saying, do you love me more than fishing, Peter? Do you love me more than these disciples? Do you love me more than this fish, more than this boat? Do you love me, Peter? Of course, Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail and still loves him and is about to restore him. There is a joy and an awareness of God's omniscience for two reasons. First, God knows the worst about us and yet loves us anyway. If God did not know all things, we might fear that someday something evil would spring up in us to startle God and turn his affection from us. He would say, oh no, look at that. How terrible. Now that changes everything. But the Bible teaches us that while we were still yet sinners, that Christ died for us. Second, since God knows all things, he also knows the best about us, though others do not. Nathaniel had come home heartbroken. He just lost his job. But rather than his wife responding with anxiety, she surprised him with joy. Now you can write your book, she said. Well, he wasn't so positive. And what shall we live on while I am writing it, he asked. To his amazement, she opened up a drawer and pulled out a wad of money she had saved out of her housekeeping budget. I always knew you were a man of genius, she told him, and I knew that one day you would write a masterpiece. She believed in her husband, and because she did, he wrote. And because he wrote... Every library in America has a copy of the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. We all need someone to believe in us. And although right here it almost seems outlandish, Jesus is telling Peter that he believes in him despite all of his failings. But not only that, the other disciples may have been startled by Peter's defection. They might have said, well, if Peter is capable of denying Jesus like that, who knows what other sins may be lurking within him. But Jesus knew better. He knew Peter's heart, and he knew that he loved him. But Peter was probably not so sure. He had still failed the Lord, even denying him three times. I'm sure he doubted his own devotion, his own ability to walk with Christ or to ever minister to others. He must have wondered if he could ever be used again in any kind of ministerial capacity. He needed a touch, I think, as we all do sometimes. And God has used this very text to touch many of his sons and daughters. I have personally found it to be one of the most helpful passages in all of Scripture because it takes me back to the grounding of my faith. And it helps me assess where I really am. And then it instructs me on how to set my life straight once again. Now, does it seem, though, cruel to you 
that the Lord asked Peter three times in front of the others whether he loved him, in clear reference to his earlier threefold denial. It seemed to be, and it was certainly painful. Yet in the ultimate analysis, it was anything but cruel. The truly cruel thing would have been to let Peter in that matter go on festering within him so that throughout his entire life, both he and others would think that he was somehow inferior and unworthy of the office that Christ was going to call him to. Although he had undoubtedly repented from his sin with weeping, as the Bible tells us. The kind thing was the public restoration so that Peter and the others would know that Peter's past was truly past and that the Lord himself had recommissioned him into service. In spite of his faults and in spite of his failures, Peter did indeed love the Lord. And he was not ashamed to admit it. And the other men there were certainly listening over Peter's shoulder because remember, they're benefiting from this conversation also for they too had failed the Lord to a man after boasting of their devotion. So Peter has already confessed and his sin has been forgiven. Now he's being restored back to apostleship and leadership. In the Greek, there are four words for love. Storge is the affection one has for a puppy. Eros is a sexual kind of love. Phileo is brotherly love. While agape love gives for the sake of giving, never expecting anything in return. The word Jesus uses here is agape, the highest kind of love. He is saying to Peter, I've shown grace to you, and now I'm reaching out towards you. Do you love me with that agape perfect kind of love. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But here, Peter uses the word phileo. And we can get the exchange between Peter and the Lord here if we refer to the first of these loves as a 100% love and the second as a 60% love. Peter, now greatly humbled because of his denial of Christ, replies with that lesser word. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you with a 60% love. This is a greatly subdued Peter. He is not saying that he does not love Christ. He does love him. But he is not boasting of his love. And above all, he's not saying that his love is better than anyone else's. He is simply stating that his heart is open to Christ and that Christ therefore knows that he loves him with the best love that he, a sinful human being, is capable of. The second time the Lord asks this question to Peter, he uses the same word agape again. Though this time he mercifully drops the comparison. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me with a hundred percent love? Peter replies as he did the first time, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you with a 60% love. The third time the question is asked, the Lord comes down to Peter's level and uses Peter's word. Simon, son of Jonah, do you even love me with a 60% love? This is as much to say, 
All right, Peter, I know you are incapable of having the kind of love that I have for you. And you are right in affirming what you are able to do. But do you really love me even on this level? Do you really love me with a 60% love? The text says that at this point, Peter was hurt. Now, the reason for Peter's grief was a change there in the Lord's vocabulary. Unlike the two previous questions, the third time, Jesus uses Peter's word for love, phileo. He called into question even the less than total devotion Peter thought he was safe in claiming. The implication that his life did not even support that level of love, well, that broke Peter's heart. Peter, again, who had no confidence in his own ability, even to see into his own heart, honestly replies, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So when Jesus goes on to give this command, he is saying, all right, Peter, I'll work with that. Because I am able to bring that limited love up to the height that I desire and the height to which I have ordained you to function. So instead of Jesus asking him once, he asked him three times. Simon, you failed me. Peter says, I know. Simon, you failed me. Peter says, I know. Simon, you failed me. Peter says, I know. So he recounts the threefold form, the content, and the setting. Jesus wants absolute psychological and emotional reality from Peter. This is the end of denial. Look at who you are and look at what you've done. You may be thinking right now, wow, Jesus is twisting the knife. Absolutely, he is. But it is the knife of a surgeon, not the knife of a thief or the knife of a cutthroat. Because every single time Jesus says, you failed me, and Peter, instead of making excuses, says, I know, but I do love you and I do want a relationship with you. Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my flock. For Jesus to come to him mercifully and tenderly to restore him, that's the height of graciousness. And if having restored Peter, he could have said, all right, Peter, you can go home now and be the best active layman you can possibly be. You are one of mine. I have not rejected you. But of course, I can never use you in a position of leadership again. If he had said that, who could blame Jesus? Jesus would have been entirely within his rights to answer like that. But this is not what he does. Instead, he tells Peter to feed my sheep. Earlier, he had called him to evangelism when he said, from now on, you will catch men. Now he's giving him the even greater responsibility of teaching those who have already been caught. The restoration was accomplished, and they had all seen it. And they had probably now understood that the Lord had planned all of this. Peter's denial had happened before fire, and now Peter's confession is before fire. There were three denials, as well as three confessions, and three gracious commissions. 
But first, Peter had to face who he really was apart from Christ and that he could do nothing. That's hard though, isn't it? It is a humbling day indeed when a person realizes that they are not as hot and holy as they thought they were. All of Bill Scott's Christian life, Bill Scott's biggest problem has been Bill Scott. Maybe you would be honest enough to say the same thing. If you pulled out your driver's license right now, would you be staring at the mug of the person who keeps getting you into trouble? If so, we just need to admit it. As painful and as humiliating as that might be, we need to own up to our mistakes and commit ourselves to never making excuses for those ever again. Proverbs 28:13 says, People who cover over their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and forsake them, they will receive mercy. But not only that, by admitting our sinful proclivities, we are actually truly being more spiritual because of that very honesty. And that should encourage and not discourage us this morning. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, please listen carefully to this. In his great book, The Christian in Complete Armor, Puritan William Gurnall writes, Christian, do not necessarily think your grace has gotten weaker because your sense of personal sin has grown stronger. This common error often causes great distress to the saint. All of a sudden, he or she becomes acutely aware of pride or hypocrisy or some other corruption that seems to break forth in hideous boils within their nature. And they are horrified at the sight of this sin. Satan then piles on the guilt. And before long, the saint is almost overcome with the pain of remorse. If this is the case with you, let me ask you something. Now, this is the point, the part I want us to get this morning. Gurnall writes, Is it possible that the sin that is weighing you down has actually been present for years, but you haven't noticed it until now? If so, rejoice to know that your grace is not fading, but flourishing and choking out some perennial weed that Satan may have sown years ago. If you are still distraught, reassure yourself in knowing that sin cannot be getting the upper hand when a person's horror at that sin is growing stronger. That should really help us this morning. And perhaps the Lord this morning is bringing some sin in our lives out just so we can begin to deal with it. The times we should be worrying is when we have sin in our lives, but we have called a truce with them and allowed them to stay unopposed. The fact that God is convicting us of sin is proof positive that we are his children. Go home and read Hebrews 12 today for more on that. Verse 18, please. Truly, truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to put on your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, 
and someone else will put your belt on and you and give you and bring you to where you do not want to go. Now he said this indicating what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back on his chest at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one betraying you? So Peter, upon seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain till I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this account went out among the brothers that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is a prophecy of Peter's death by martyrdom, as John points out. It's as much to say that Peter's former boast, which he had not been able to keep when he said, I will lay down my life for you, is going to eventually be granted. Peter is going to die for Christ. And anyone who yields himself to serve the Lord must honestly confront this matter of our impending death. When a person has settled the matter of death, then and then only really is he or she ready to start living. As Pascal put it, I believe those witnesses who are willing to get their throats cut. There would come a time, Jesus warned, when others would seize Peter, bind him, and lead him to be executed. Peter's death by the phrase, stretch out your hands, implies that it would be by crucifixion. And according to church tradition, Peter was crucified, but he requested to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same way of his Lord. The first time Jesus spoke about his death, if you remember, Peter opposed it. Peter even used his sword in the garden in a futile attempt to protect the Lord. Yet Peter had boasted that he would rather die than deny the Lord Jesus. But when the pressure was on, Peter failed miserably, as everyone in this room would have done. So now recommissioned, Peter began to follow Jesus again, just as he had done before his great denial. However, for a moment, Peter took his eyes off the Lord, a mistake he has made in the past, and why did Peter look away from the Lord and start to look back again? He heard someone walking behind him. Good old Peter. He truly did love Jesus with all of his heart. He had been restored. He had been recommissioned. But he was still Peter. Jesus answered, if I want John to remain until I return, what is that to you? This is the New Testament version of mind your own beeswax. <laughs> Jesus says, Petey, old boy, you follow me. In other words, don't concern yourself with what I do with the lives of my other servants. You just keep on following me. And if John lived until the second coming, Peter, it still has no bearing on your responsibility. And what did happen to John? Well, John would be poisoned, boiled in oil, 
and exiled until he finally died. But Jesus doesn't tell Peter this. The Lord rebuked Peter and just reminded him that his job was to follow and not to meddle in the lives of other believers. We should all be very wary when we get our eyes off of the Lord and start to look instead at other Christians. Looking only unto Jesus should be the aim and practice of every believer. To be distracted by ourselves, our circumstances, or even by other Christians is to disobey the Lord and possibly get detoured off of the will of God. Keep your eyes of faith on Him and on Him alone. No matter what our situation in life this morning, Christ calls out to us the same thing when He says, Follow me. And below the surface of those words was something meaningful and beautiful to Peter. This stemmed from the fact that the first public command that Jesus gave to Peter was, Follow me, as he had observed him fishing. Now, Peter was a little younger then. He knew little of what that was going to involve. But he did follow. Now the same command comes again. How those words have been deepened in just those few short years. Peter had been in Gethsemane. He had witnessed the suffering of Christ at Golgotha. He had even denied Christ. But now he has learned the necessity of following Christ. What a depth of meaning those words, follow me, now carried. And that gracious command rings out to all of us this morning again. Follow me. If you are a new Christian, this is going to be Christ's ongoing command. And you are asked to respond at your own personal level of that understanding. And if you have been through the wars and you are battle-scarred, it is still the same, perhaps seemingly infinitely more complex, yet it's still just as simple. Follow me. Look at verse 24 with me. This is a disciple who is testifying about these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I expect that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who were among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity. The world cannot even hold all that could be written about Jesus. But the scripture indicates that in the ages to come, we will last be able to explore more fully his grace and mercy. John tells us in Revelation that there are four creatures in heaven who praise the Lord ceaselessly, perpetually, and eternally. This goes on day and night because they are continually seeing different facets, different sides, and different aspects of the person of Christ. 
And one day that same thing is going to eternally happen to us. He will so captivate our hearts and expand our minds that as we explore and experience the exceeding riches of his grace and goodness, we will praise him throughout all eternity. Hope that as we finish the Gospel of John today, you realize that no case is hopeless. Your case is not hopeless. God took Abraham the pagan and made him into a pillar of faith and the father of his people. He took Moses a stammerer and a stutterer and made him the greatest vehicle into the communication of the word of God until the apostle Paul. He made the shepherd boy David into a king. Peter the weak into Peter the rock. John the son of thunder into the apostle of love. Paul the, per the persecutor of Christians into a faithful ambassador and martyr. And he can do that for us today. What the Lord did forever settled in the minds of those apostles that they were called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives, no matter what that would entail. The Lord, as always, uses weak and sinful people to advance his kingdom. Why? Because <laughs> there are no other kinds of people. Paul would later say, For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Apostle Paul made the statement, and we all know how he was converted on the road to Damascus, in one blinding moment, literally, he was changed from being a Christian killer to an evangelist, and for the rest of his life suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. He rose far above his arrogant and vicious past, pouring himself out for the sake of the gospel. He learned to delight in hardships, because they made, it they made it possible for him to lean hard on God's strength for everything. If you are in the ark of salvation this morning, you are guaranteed of making it home. Now, will it always be easy? No. Listen to how one Puritan describes it. He says, many are now in heaven having shot the gulf and have safely landed there. They are those who are sadly tossed with fears all along their voyage about the truth of grace in them, but such a one may be seasick on the ship. I love that. Even though we may doubt if we're going to make it sometimes, we are going to land there one day, even if we do get a little queasy in our journey from time to time. With every passing day, we are pitching our moving tent one day's march nearer home. After the bombs of World War II ravaged downtown Warsaw, only one skeletal structure remained on the city's main street. The damaged structure was the Polish headquarters of the British and Foreign Bible Society, and the words on its only remaining wall were clearly legible from the street. It said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is a picture of the Christian hope. Though the world may collapse, the work of Christ is going to endure. 
And the book ends with Peter and John following Jesus, and he led them right into the book of Acts. So as we finish up this morning, remember, it's not who you are, but it's who is with you. I read about a Chinese student named Ann Lowe who was going to UCLA. She's what we would call a party girl. She just had very loose morals. But there were a couple of Christian girls on her floor who kept sharing the gospel with her. And she truly did like these girls. She just couldn't buy what they were saying. She continued partying until Christmas break when she went back home. Ann's mother was also a believer, excuse me, and she continued pleading with her daughter to turn from her sin. This so angered Ann that she just got up and walked out on her mother. Well, a few days went by and Ann and her parents were opening gifts and Ann opened up the gift from her mother and it was a New Testament. This made Ann seethe with anger. And so as soon as her parents left the room, she tossed the New Testament right into the burning fireplace. But the Holy Spirit wasn't done working with her. A few hours later, under deep conviction, she walked back into the room and just began to weep over the futility and the emptiness that her life had become. She walked over to the fireplace and saw what was left of the New Testament. It was charred and almost completely destroyed. Well, except for one corner of one page. It was from the Gospel of Matthew. It was Matthew 28:20, and Ann Lowe couldn't believe it. For what she read was, And lo, I am with you even to the end of the world. It was as if God Almighty was calling out her name and she surrendered her life to him from that day forward. So at the conclusion of the Gospel of John, what should we do? We should pray for revival, plan for survival, and look for his arrival. He has promised us that we will make it, and he is not a man that he should lie. Let us pray. Lord, we have so enjoyed going through the Gospel of John and getting to know you. You are merciful and majestic, strong and sympathetic, and truly you are the lover of our souls this morning. Draw us to you with that need of salvation, sanctification, or strength. You and you alone can do all these things. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.